Dear Father, we stand here tonight amazed at your grace and amazed that you have chosen the likes of us to be a part of your family by faith. And we thank you, Lord, for a small but growing group of people who love you and love your word. We turn to it every week, Father, for it has all that we need for life and godliness. And we look forward, Father, each week to what you'll unveil in your word to us. And we do that, Father, in eager anticipation of learning great things. But, Father, never let us be a group of people who are satisfied in learning. Because, Father, if we do not do what we are told, we are no better than those who do not know. In fact, Father, you might say we are worse. For those to whom much is given, much is required. So, Father, we ask that you would not only teach us tonight, but that you would encourage our hearts into a life that reflects what we've learned. That's who we want to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back into our text tonight. We're in Matthew chapter 7. Tonight we're going to reach the very end of Jesus' Sermon on True Righteousness called the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we've been in this for a while now. It goes back to chapter 5, and perhaps you're happy to hear that we're finally going to be at the end. We pick up tonight in verse 12. I'm not going to give any more summary or review tonight. I think we've heard enough. We're just going to dive into the last part. This is Jesus now transitioning into the final section of his sermon on righteousness. Verse 12. He says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, I'm pausing there. We are going to finish the chapter tonight, but this is a transition point between where he has been and where he is going, so he needs a moment of its own. That statement I just read in verse 12 is a brief summary on Jesus' part of everything he has taught in this sermon on the nature of righteousness. And it's also a concise summary of the first 11 verses of this chapter, but it's looking beyond even that. You and I know this verse by name. It's come to be called the golden rule, named by, ironically, an unbeliever by a Roman emperor, Alexander Severus. He was just astounded, I guess, at Jesus' maxim, at its all-encompassing nature. So he had it engraved in gold on the walls of his palace. And at that point, it became known throughout the empire as the golden rule for that reason. But aside from its unique name, the rule of thumb that we call the golden rule is well known because it's got such amazing power to produce good behavior. Tell me you haven't heard parents telling their kids this rule, if not by name, at least in the essence of it, or teachers putting it on the walls in their classrooms or kindergarten or whatever. Employers will use it to teach employees how they expect them to behave in the workplace. And everyone just has an appreciation instinctively for the brilliance of it. The maxim just says that in any particular situation of life, you can determine in that moment what righteousness requires of you through a simple thought experiment. What you do, of course, is in your mind, you trade places with the other person. Put yourself in their place, put them in your place, and then from that perspective, consider how you want to be treated if the roles were reversed. It's just that simple. And then whatever you decide you would prefer for yourself, that's what you do for them. That's what Jesus is asking of us. And that is such an elegant solution for knowing exactly what righteousness requires when you're dealing with other people in some particular setting. Now, I have to say here, though, first, this thing works assuming that we conduct this thought experiment sincerely. That is to say, you can't play games with your answer when you're trying to figure out what righteousness requires. Otherwise, you're not going to arrive at the right answer. For example, if you're trying to decide whether or not you should offer your opinion to someone on their choice of outfit, you, you can't say to yourself, well, if I were her, I would want to know that my dress is ugly. You can't do that. 
You follow me? Because that's not answering the question honestly. The, the truth is, if you were them, you would not want to be embarrassed or humiliated in that moment. And so you take that insight and you let it guide how you approach that circumstance. And maybe there is a place and time to let on that that's not really good on you. But you don't have to say it in a way that insults or that embarrasses. That's the idea of this. When it's used properly, it's incredibly powerful. And I know we all know the rule, but it's really, I think, a shame how few people actually use it consistently. And by the way, it's not limited to just some circumstances. You notice as Jesus gives us the rule, he says, in everything. You notice that phrase? So that no matter what situation you're involved in or what uh, uh, the people are or whatever's going on, if you trade places with the other person, you're going to see the proper course. Examples of this rule are endless, and I could go on and on. I just thought of a few. Um, Like when you drive in traffic. That's going to be the easy one. Everyone can identify with this, right? Put yourself in the place of the other drivers and then ask, what would you want if you were the other guy on the road? Well, use your turn signal then, right? Don't uh, tailgate. Don't drive aggressively. Don't cut someone off in traffic, right? Because if it happens to you, how do you feel? It's a simple idea. Let someone else have the good parking spot. Oh, there's one we didn't think about, right? Oh, look, honey, the one right by the door, lucky us. And yet you run marathons. How about you park in the back of the parking lot? You know, it's, it's funny. I've been in places where you find churches that have a sign right next to the front door, right there. And what does the sign say? Reserved for the pastor. Okay, wait a minute. Jesus said we serve, right? We, we, you know, the one who's least among us will be greatest. So I've always told churches that if you ever want to give me a parking spot with my name on it, first of all, don't. But if you do, make it the furthest one from the front door. Make it the furthest one from the front door. That's my spot. I get it. No one will want it. It doesn't matter. Or at home. You know, when we go home, we have family relationships up and down. Parents, children, spouses. You should be using this rule to think, what is it I'm to do for the other person in my family? Husbands, offer your wife the remote control. I saw a few women in the room going, oh, that'll be the day. How about doing, gentlemen, do the dishes voluntarily? Uh, (laughs) I should have instituted the no elbow rule right about now. Hey, guys, put the seat down. All right. Now, wives, say no thank you to the remote. When the remote is offered, no, you keep it, honey. See? Now, you think I'm being facetious, but didn't the rule just apply that way? Your husband's offering it to you. That's kind of the point all in its own. He just, he just, he just did the right thing there in an effect of just asking. The actual transfer of the hardware isn't necessary at that point in order for the point to have been made. Now, you doing what he would want would be to say, no, honey, I like it when you have the remote. Now, you can't lie, but you remember the story? Oh, Henry wrote a book about this basic concept. A husband who wanted to have money to buy his wife something for her hair, and the wife wanted to have money to buy something for her husband's watch. They ended up each selling the thing that they were going to use for the money for the other, and neither could use the thing they were given. But it was just a gesture of thinking of the other person, right? If you haven't read the short story, it's worth it. How about parents? You should enforce rules consistently with your children because that's actually the good thing for them. You should have grace for their mistakes because they will make them. And you should never make your love for them conditional on whether they have good behavior. Children, obey your parents consistently. Accept their judgments when you fail. Never make your respect for their authority conditional on getting your own way. I mean, these are mature concepts you have to teach, but the point is, flip places, what would my mom or dad want from me? What would my child want from me at this point? And then, of course, there's limits. Now, I want you to notice something about this rule that's really important. It does not say, imagine what you think is best for the other person. 
It's easy to get this confused, actually. Jesus didn't ask us to take a position of judging another person and then decide what we think is best for them under these circumstances and then do that. No, the rule says you take their position and then do what you would prefer done for yourself. You become them for a moment in your mind. And then, and here's the key, you get to act selfishly. You're encouraged to act selfishly, except you're putting your selfishness to work for them. On their behalf. That's the secret for why this rule works so well. Because it harnesses that very part of us that is responsible for our sin. It neutralizes our pride and our ego because it puts them to work for the other person's benefit instead of for our own benefit, which is how they're normally oriented. There's a lot of sin in the world, but pride is where it all started. And pride at its essence is acting in your own interest without concern for anyone else's. It's always looking out for number one. It's always seeking to maximize its own return at everyone else's expense. That's where pride really gets rolling. So when you take your pride and you stand in their place and you act selfishly in your pride for your own needs, you're naturally arriving at the most selfless response for their sake because you've transferred all the interest to them. Am I making sense here? That's what's so powerful about this rule and why you have to take their viewpoint. You can't simply assume what you think is right for them. I think it's called the golden rule because it actually has the potential to increase your obedience and thereby your eternal reward. If you put it into practice consistently in your relationships with other people, you will find yourself acting more righteously on balance than you were otherwise. And as you act obediently, as you act in love for another person, you give opportunity for your Father in heaven to bless you with eternal reward. We've already learned that earlier in this sermon. All right, let's just move on then. Because at the end of verse 12, there's something that leads us into where we're going. At the end of verse 12, he says, Everything I've taught you is summing up what you find in the law and the prophets. You notice he says that at the end of verse 12. That statement should remind you of something you heard earlier in this sermon. Back in chapter 5, I know that was like, what? six months ago. But if you glance back to the beginning of Jesus' sermon, in chapter 5, in verse 17, you flip back a page, you'll see it, Jesus makes a similar statement. He says, Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So as he began his teaching, he declared, I'm not an enemy of the Word of God. I'm now here to explain the Word of God, to tell you all that it means, to, to show you how my teaching is in line with the Word of God. And then at the end, he says, and everything I just said can be summed up in this way, which is a, basically an overview of the Law and the Prophets. When you see that in Scripture, a phrase like Law and the Prophets, or any phrase, that starts a section and then the same thing said at the end of the section, we have a word for that. It's an inclusio. It's a technical term for bookends, for the beginning and the end of something. It's a sign to the reader. It's meant to show us that everything between those two bookends comes under a common theme or a common idea. It's a single entity. So Jesus marks the beginning of his sermon on righteousness, and he marks the end of his sermon on righteousness, saying, what I'm telling you is basically what you find in the Bible, as we see it today, the Word of God. Now, why does he want to emphasize that to his audience? It's probably because a lot of what he said doesn't sound at all like what they're used to hearing. Because this sermon is pretty radical from a first century Jewish point of view. He's teaching concepts here that were very different from what a typical Jew had heard. Very different from what Pharisees 
had said about righteousness or the kingdom. But here's the thing. It's not radical because it's different than the Bible. It's radical because it's different than the Mishnah. It's different than the Pharisees' teaching. So Jesus knew what was going to come next. He knew the Pharisees would come after him at at about this point. They'd start to accuse him of things like trying to abolish the law or of teaching against Moses and the like, which is why he preempted that attack in this statement, saying, I'm not telling you anything that's different than what you find in the Word. And I think, more importantly, he wanted his disciples to know that they have to be able to identify and verify that what they're told by their teachers is in fact consistent with the Bible. If they had been doing that all along, they wouldn't have been in the place they were at that time, which was completely mixed up with regard to these concepts because they'd been badly taught for so long by false teachers. And he wants you to understand that if you are set out to discover spiritual truth, if that's your aim in life, by that I mean weeding out the lies, knowing what's real, then you have to have some standard by which you compare what you hear. There's no other way to know it. I've got to have a measuring tape to know how long something is. I've got to have some standard by which I'm going to understand if I have what I'm supposed to have. And the standard we're supposed to use is the one Jesus just said, use on me. That is the word of God, the law and the prophets. He said, that's my standard. And that's the standard we all should be using. Remember, in Israel's day, and you may not have realized this just from reading the Bible, but historically, the typical God-fearing Jew was totally biblically illiterate. It was a biblically illiterate culture. And I think the church today is largely biblically illiterate. Despite their reverence for the Old Testament, despite the fact that they would memorize parts of the Old Testament and all the rest and talk about it and have it nailed to their doors and hanging on phylacteries and so on, they didn't know what it meant. They understood very, very little of it as as a result of how the culture worked. What they did instead was rely on Pharisees to tell them what it meant to explain it to them. And a Pharisee, for his part, preferred to teach people their rules in the Mishnah, which they had written and they knew very well, and not to bother too much with getting into the details of Scripture. That kind of got them off point. So what Jesus does at this point is he uses that reference to law and the prophets as a jumping off point for the rest of the sermon. So what he's done is he's summed up what he said, and he's given us a rule that captures it, and he said, this is consistent with the Bible. And then from that discussion, he's now going to move forward. He's going to say, and by the way, as you consider what I say, or as you hear what they will say, you need a standard, the same one I just used. And let me give you some insight on what you're going to experience as you try to use that standard. That's where we go now. This final section of the sermon is organized as a series of four pairs. And each pair will be a contrast between spiritual truth and spiritual lies and the resulting outcomes of following either one. That's what he's doing now. But it's on this idea of preparing his audience to be able to discern, who do you follow? Who do you believe? Me or them? So let's begin with the first pair. Matthew seven thirteen. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. All right, well, there's your first contrast. And it's between a narrow gate and a wide gate. Pretty simple. And for a first century Jew, this was a very easy comparison to understand. It was just taken straight out of their everyday life. Cities in that day were walled, as you might know, for protection. They had high walls around them. And, of course, you've got to get in and out of the city. You've got to get through a gate. So they would insert gates in the wall to let people pass through. And if you had a larger city like Jerusalem, for example, 
you might have typically a half dozen of these gates spread out around the walls of the city, and they'd be of various sizes, various purposes. They're designed, of course, to support the commerce and the travel of the city and so on. Some of them would be wide and ornate, and those were the gates that were typically associated with large roads. The major crossing roads that might come to that city would have been met by large gates because that's where the traffic would be. That's where the major entry points were for the city. And naturally, people who were coming to the city would favor those entrances because they'd be on the road, and the road would just take them straight into the major gate. There were also, though, smaller gates, more narrow, less ornate, functional gates. And these would be put in more out-of-the-way places. Off the main roads, they typically would face a field, or they might look down over a valley. Not a place you really wanted to travel through to get into the gate, kind of off the beaten path. They were used for things like the shepherds coming in and out of the city with their flock, and they wouldn't want to have to go on the major road with all the people. They'd go out the minor gates, and they'd go out into the field. Or if you had to dump refuse... Refuse was often dumped into a steep valley and burned at the bottom, so you had a small gate that would lead down into a a ditch or a, a wadi or something. So Jesus is drawing on all of that cultural reference, and he says, I want you to compare the act of discovering spiritual truth, of learning the truth about God and the kingdom, heaven as we would say. I want you to compare that to these kinds of gates and paths. He says, finding spiritual truth requires that you go against the crowd and that you go out of your way. That when conventional wisdom tells you, stay on the wide path, go where you see the crowds, take the more appealing entrance, Jesus says, that is not usually where you'll find the truth. But he says, when you want to find spiritual truth, when you want to get to know the kingdom, dispense with conventional wisdom with crowds, forget the majority, stop listening to the so-called religious experts, and instead, find it another way. And on Jesus' day, the conventional wisdom, the majority, the crowds, were those who were following the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the experts of their day, and they're the ones that the crowds pointed to. And they taught in Jesus' day, the conventional wisdom that they taught, was that every living Jew was saved automatically, simply because they were Jewish. They taught that God's promises to Israel, found in his old covenants we have with Abraham, or the covenants he gave to Moses, those covenants assured every Jew a place in heaven, which is not true, but that's what they were told. In fact, there was a story that was circulated within Jewish culture back in that time that said that Father Abraham, who was obviously gone by that time, dead, they said Father Abraham spends his time standing at the gate of hell so that should any Jew be accidentally diverted down there, He would intercept them, turn them around, and send them back to heaven. Now, they weren't saying that in some kind of silly sense. They literally believed that. Now, you go to bed at night as a Jew with no concerns if that's how you think it works, doesn't it? But by the same token, you have very little incentive to consider what's true or righteous. So, the Jewish people were taught that kind of nonsense, that they were assured the kingdom. That is the equivalent in Jesus' comparison here to following the wide path. Going where the crowds go to accept conventional wisdom as truth. Because if you went to the Bible, even in the Old Testament, you wouldn't find that. You would not find that. But they didn't need to because that's where the masses of Israel went. And Jesus says if the world is going a certain direction in general, he says that wide path is a path that leads to destruction. Now, when he says destruction, let's be clear. He's talking specifically about the lake of fire. 
He's talking about the second death, as Revelation calls it. Eternal separation from God. The place, the home for all souls after death who do not know Jesus. The permanent eternal home of the unbeliever. That's destruction. How do I know he's talking about that place? Because he contrasts destruction with, in verse 14, with life, meaning eternal life. It's either eternal life on the narrow path or it's eternal destruction on the wide path. So if someone in Israel expected to be in the kingdom merely because they were Jewish, as they had been told, they were taking the wide path. They were going where everyone went and Jesus says it ain't going to end well for that person. You know, you and I know the same kind of thinking still prevails today, even in Gentile circles, certainly, in the world. I'm going to give it a name. I call it safety in numbers. It's the safety in numbers myth. People generally assume that if they are a part of something that's large, that that they're part of the majority, that that in some way affirms their point of view. That's why you see businesses so quick to tell you that they are the largest company in their particular field. You notice that? We're the largest bank, largest insurance company, largest car maker, largest online store. Why are they doing that? Because they know that the culture thinks that if you're big and you're popular, it means you must be doing something right. Or so we assume. And that same mentality guides people into their search for God and their search even for a specific religion. You assume that if a particular religion has a large following or a a popular leader, you know, crowds turn out for him everywhere he goes, well then that religion must be onto something. And in the Christian mindset, if a church has an impressive building, if it has a large congregation, a nationally known pastor, some big exciting thing that draws the huge crowd, well then it must be the right thing. They must be doing something right. And we all want to be associated with success, don't we? We all want to be associated because success and popularity equals truth, right? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That doesn't work, does it? Jesus says, that's not how you find truth. Now, I'm not saying because something's big, it doesn't have truth. I'm just saying what Jesus said as a maxim. The maxim is that few find the truth. Most don't because most are where the crowds are on the wide path. The truth about God, the truth about heaven is a lot harder to find than most people realize. It's not found with the majority, Jesus says. Which means that if your strategy for understanding God and how to get to heaven assumes that you're on to something because there's a whole lot of other people with you in it, you know, that's, that's not necessarily reassuring. That's not necessarily proof that you're in the right place. In Jesus' day, Pharisees commanded the crowds. Jesus was on the narrow path. Now, at some point in his ministry, he gains popularity. We know that. It's coming. But uh, it went away pretty quick, didn't it? Few elected to follow him. Jesus says, the reason why the path is narrow and hard to find is because it opposes what's on the wide path. By definition, you have to pick. If you ever heard somebody give you that old adage about there are many ways to heaven, this Contrast makes clear that's not true. You pick one, and that takes you somewhere, and you go where it takes you, and you end up there at some point. And Jesus taught, literally in many cases, the opposite of what Pharisees were teaching. So you couldn't have it both ways. I mean, you were, you were self-contradictory if you believed both. 
So only those who were willing to listen closely to him and compare what he said to the law and the prophets, thereby knowing that what he was saying was true, they're the ones who understood this is actually the right path, despite the fact that I'm kind of lonely on this path right now. And there aren't a lot of other people who agree with it. That is the truth today in the church, friends. Please do not be deceived by the fact that people can fill stadiums with crowds and use that to suggest that what they're doing inside that building is biblical. It's not a surprise that they can fill a big building. That, that is not hard. Do you know we do that every Sunday in football stadiums around the country? The Romans used to do that with coliseums. You know how hard it is to fill a stadium with people? You just give them what they want. That's all you have to do. Give them what they like. Tell them what they want to hear. Give them what they want. And they will keep coming. It's not a mystery that there are lots of people sitting in the wrong places. It's not hard to imagine how that happens. The world generally is made up of unbelievers. That much we should all agree on. So in the broad sense of this, there are far more on the path to destruction than there are who understand Jesus as Lord. That we get. But even in the church, we have to be careful about accepting conventional wisdom in place of an honest and forthright study of the Word of God. Because your salvation isn't turning on this. If you know Christ is Lord, you're saved. That's the end of it. But that does not mean that's the end of your walk with Christ. And that certainly doesn't mean you don't care what you learn along the way. We need to understand that the scriptures continuously guide us away from what the enemy is always at work trying to do, which is to steal off a few sheep here and there and sideline us from the work that God has for his church. Because I tell you, friends, the more I study the Bible myself, the more I find that so much of what is popular teaching in the church today is just flat wrong, or at least it's incomplete. And I'm not pretending to know it all. I'm not suggesting I'm the authority. This is the authority. I'm not saying it's me. But what I am saying is, I just read it, and I read it, and it says something opposite of what somebody in the pulpit is saying. Where am I, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, what Jesus says is, don't worry about the fact that you're not in the popular element. It's okay. It's normal. Now, on the other hand, I want to say something just to clarify, because otherwise I might set you on the wrong path. Any teaching about God or heaven that's unconventional isn't automatically right either. Just because someone has a minority view doesn't make it automatically right either. This is not an all or none. It's back to the key, which is you have to know the truth as you see it in the Bible, and then compare what you hear to that continuously. And you should do that for me, starting with here and now. There's nothing I say that is sacrosanct unless it's what the Bible says. And I'm going to be wrong sooner or later because I'm a man. I'm not perfect. I'm not claiming to be. I just don't know where I'm wrong. I mean that sincerely. If I knew, I'd fix it. And when I find out, I fix it. But in the meantime, I know what I know, and I tell you what I know, and you need to figure it out on your own from Scripture because you cannot say that somebody said so, so it's true. You need to say the Word of God says so, so it's true. And I may have learned it from so-and-so, but he also said something else I think was kind of wrong. Right? That's normal. That's normal. Jesus validated his own teaching this way. He says, everything I've said is the law and the prophets, and we should use the same standard for anyone who teaches us. It's just that simple. So we don't accept a teaching because it's common, and we don't reject it out of hand because it's new or different, and we don't do the opposite for either. We just go to the Bible every time. So in all cases, hear what you hear, consider it in the light of Scripture. And I would also add this. If a teacher from the pulpit does not endeavor to back up their teaching with Scripture, then you have good reason to be suspicious of what they're doing. They're playing fast and loose. If they cite Scripture 
and what they cite doesn't support their conclusions, well, then you know you can reject what they're saying because they're not using the text honestly. And I don't mean to suggest everyone who does this is evil. We all make mistakes. But if that's the pattern of their ministry, there's better people. Go find them. When you find someone, though, who's teaching, generally speaking, lines up with Scripture, and they have a pattern of supporting what they say from Scripture so that even you can go double-check their work, then that's someone worth learning under, at least for a time. Because in my experience, they're hard to find. And I'm not crediting myself when I say this. I'm just endeavoring to do what I tell you to do. But I am telling you, if you look and you find someone like that, they're worth listening to because they're not easy to find these days. This technique that Jesus is giving us here, it's especially important in a culture that is biblically illiterate. Most Christians don't know a lot about what's in their Bible. I like to play little games with folks sometimes, and I say, name the 66 books of the Bible. Well, you know, everyone looks at you like, well, that's unreasonable. Okay, name five that are not in the New Testament, you know? And you'd be surprised how many people can't... Or, tell you what, I'm going to give you a name of a book in the Bible. Just give me a general overview of what the book's about. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, I hope he doesn't do that to me. (laughs) Okay, but that's your sign. That's an indication of what I mean by biblical illiteracy, right? I mean, what does it really mean to know what's in the Bible? Doesn't it mean to at least know the books? (laughs) Or roughly what they're about? I mean, if you don't even know that, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying you have an opportunity. But it also indicates where we are, I think, as a body generally, that the Bible has no longer become that urgent call on our life, that source of, of, of everything to us, that if we don't understand it, we know we're lacking something, and we're not drawn into it like we used to be. And I'll tell you why. It's because the people who lead us don't give us the desire for it because they make it seem boring, unapproachable, strange, inconsistent, shame on us. When you get to a place where the Bible is not important or it's relegated to sort of the shelves or it's summarized in three-point sermons that have a joke at the beginning and a tearjerker at the end, that's a recipe for false teaching and false teachers filling stadiums around the world with deceived people. That's how you get there. And speaking of false... And I'm on this little soapbox because that's where Jesus is. Look where he goes. Speaking of false teachers, it's the next contrast. He says, verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now I could preach a whole sermon on this passage. I'm almost there anyway. But for today, we only need to focus on the contrast. Let's just get down to the nut of it here. What's he emphasizing? Well, it's obviously a contrast between two trees. And at the very beginning, he tells you what the trees represent. They represent teachers, spiritual leaders. And so immediately we understand that his point here is that you have to choose your teachers carefully. That is, if you're going to find the narrow path and stay on it, you need people who understand that and will guide you properly in that. And you're to watch out for the ones who aren't doing that, which he calls false prophets. But here's the problem, and this is where the contrast really comes alive. He says the problem with your false prophet is that you can't identify them outwardly. They look like sheep. But they're not. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. And that reference to a wolf who's in sheep's clothing, you know, you wonder where that phrase comes from. Here's where it came from. Those wolves in this context 
would imply unbelievers. The opposite of sheep, in other words. Men and women who do not know Jesus, they're not going to heaven. I don't care what they think about themselves, they're not. They're wolves. And yet they portray themselves to be Christians. One of the flock, which makes them exceedingly dangerous. Because they're masquerading as believers for nefarious purposes, usually personal financial gain. Moving around within the church. Now clearly, you and I do not want to take our spiritual instruction from men or women who do not even possess what they're claiming to offer us, which is godliness. But how do you identify them? Peter says in 2 Peter 2.1 that false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Here again, he's confirming they deny Jesus. They are not believers. But how do you spot a wolf if they dress just like you? That's the fundamental problem. In Jesus' day, Pharisees were wolves, but to an untrained eye, they looked like the most godly teacher you could imagine. They were the epitome of righteousness to the untrained eye in Israel. And to make matters worse, some Pharisees were believers. Remember Nicodemus? So you have within there some who are genuine but many who are not. So how do I pick them out? Well, in this case, Jesus says, just look at the fruit. Now, judging a tree by its fruit in the analogy is very simple to understand, right? To compare it to what he's talking about here, we know the tree is a person. So the fruit of a false teacher is what? Well, at the essence of this context, this idea of teaching and direction and spiritual guidance and so on, we're talking about the spiritual impact of their ministry, the spiritual impact of what they say, of what they stand for. So we could ask questions like, what comes from them spiritually? That's the fruit. Are they people under the influence, are the people who are under their influence growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are those people desiring to uh, get away from a life of the lusts of the flesh? And are they looking to be obedient to God's word? And is that materializing under that man's teaching? Is that what you see happening? Do they act more godly as a result of what that person brings them in their teaching? That's fruit. Not how big their ministry is. Not how many people know their name. Not how many books they have or how many records or CDs. I'm old. CDs that they have. Streams. I don't know. What do we do today, right? Not, not how much money they make. Not how big their jet is or how fast it flies or any other. I mean, you know, all that nonsense is not fruit. Though they'll tell you it is. I'm rich. That proves God loves me. They'll tell you it's fruit. No, what's fruit is, what do the people who follow their teaching look like? What does their life look like? And if you find that people who who follow their teaching like to appeal to the lusts of their flesh and are encouraged for a love of this world rather than of the next, and they are spiritually malnourished, filled with heresies and wrong, well, then you know enough already to know what kind of tree you're looking at. It's just that simple. You can spot false teachers really easily, in my experience, using this rule. And you'll be shocked sometimes at who they are. And Jesus says, when you find, and here's the key, friends, when you find out that someone's a false teacher, you reject their teaching. Not some of it. Not just the bad stuff. And even if they should happen to get something right once in a while, you know the old saying, even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while? That doesn't prove that that person knows what they're doing. The point is, you don't want to get caught up trying to figure out Well, that was the good stuff. No, that one might not be. No, you walk away from them because they're unbelievers. They don't know anything. That's the whole concept here. The tree is bad. So the fruit is bad. Not some of it, 
All of it. I've had people tell me sometimes, well, I know this book or this movie or this thing is not quite biblical and the person behind it wasn't a Christian, but boy, it's... No, stop me there. That's it. If you want me to see it because it's entertaining, okay, fine. I saw Star Wars. That's not biblical, but I like it. Okay. But you told me this is something good because you found it spiritually valuable. And you're telling me it comes from a bad tree. End of conversation. Not gonna, that's not what I need. I got this. It's better. If the source is bad, then the fruit is bad, even if it looks good. Remember, the fruit in the garden looked pretty good to somebody too. All right, so if your favorite preacher or favorite author says something worthwhile once in a while, but they're filled with bad fruit, cut it off. And that leads to the third contrast, because not all who claim to represent God are truly His. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I'm sure you've heard a lot of people quote this. I know I have. It's a, it's a phrase, I think, that sticks in our head. And I have to think that many are focused on this because it's so provocative. It, it actually starts to get us questioning our own situation if we're not too careful, right? It, it, it may introduce questions in our own mind about where we are. But I want you to notice the context. that It'll put those concerns to rest. He's talking about false prophets here. This is a continuation of where he just was. Those who claim to know God and to claim to speak for God, and yet they do not know him. So this is not a test for the individual Christian. It's not intended to cast doubt on, on those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. Look, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it's over. Forget about it. Move on. Stop thinking about that. It's done. These people have never done that. <laughs> That's the difference. They've never done that. This test is supposed to alert us to the reality that not all who lead us and not all that teach us are legitimate. It's on the issue of those above us. In fact, he focuses, as you notice here, he focuses on the kinds of things these people do. He says, prophesying in Jesus' name, casting out demons in his name, performing other miracles. These are evidence of someone who is in a responsible position, a leadership role at the head of the table, at the head of the room. Okay, that's what he's referring to here. But I want you to notice as he mentions these things about them, he doesn't challenge the truthfulness of their claims. He doesn't say, no, you didn't. He lets it stand. He says, I just didn't know you. What he's saying is this. They did do these things. They did do these things. False teachers do, on many occasions, possess real power. Real, demonic power. The ability to perform signs. The ability to do wonders that no one else seems to be able to do. But here's the thing Jesus is saying to us. Those signs are not evidence that these people know God much less speak on his behalf. When the judgment day comes, Jesus is going to reject them because he says, I never knew them. And he quotes from Psalm 6-8. And that's a psalm in which David says that God is going to take his enemies, David's enemies, and put them far from David saying, I did not know you. It's a not so subtle way of saying that the Pharisees are not on the side of David and the prophets. They're on the other side. The enemy side. So simply put, these people have no relationship with Jesus. They have no access to heaven. What, what you're seeing with this contrast is the flip side of the one we just studied a moment earlier. It's the counterpoint to the fruit contrast. Here's the counterpoint. 
Just as he said in that earlier contrast, look at the fruit of a man's ministry and you'll know whether he is truly good or not. Now what he's saying is, oh, as you go inspecting that fruit, however, do not look at miraculous signs and wonders. That is not fruit. That is not a sign to you. Because those displays in and of themselves are proof of nothing. Because not only can God work through a human being to accomplish those things, self-evidently so can Satan. That he has enough power as a created powerful angel that he can do certain things through his followers and in so doing mimic God. He can grant people the power to do supernatural things. Now later, actually next week, in chapter 8, we start a new chapter. And in that chapter, we're actually going to see a series of miracles that Jesus does against the demonic realm. And as we do that, we're going to spend some time trying to understand more about the power and the practice of demons. I figure that's a good place to start looking at that. But for now, just understand that demons can be clever imitators of God. But there's one thing Satan cannot counterfeit. Godliness. He does not counterfeit godliness. He can't do it. So if a false teacher is working with Satan's power instead of God's power, he may do a lot of miraculous signs. But he will not see, as a product of his ministry, godliness in the lives of those who are following him. Not as a rule. And that's the fruit you inspect. So this is the counterpunch. Check for fruit. Just don't look at the wrong stuff. Look for the right things. Now, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were clearly not a godly, loving, compassionate, charitable, forgiving group of men. They were not believers. They had no fruit. And that's what Jesus wanted his crowd to see as well. I don't care how many people they might raise from the dead. That's not the point. What's their ministry produce in the lives of the living? That would be a better test. So so, just because someone is on TV, just because everybody else is talking about their latest book or, or whatever they do, just because they stand up and say, heal, and somebody falls over, and all kinds of weird things happen on the stage. Just because that stuff happens, that tells you nothing about whether they are good or bad. In fact, it probably means you should be careful. But if you just want to be objective about it, all you have to do, this is the brilliant thing that Jesus is teaching us, just quietly sit down and compare what they say with what you see in the book. It's just that simple. And if what they say is not what this says, off it doesn't have to be any harder than that. And you might say, well, sometimes people get things wrong. Well, true. Even I could get things wrong. It's a joke. Yes, of course I get things wrong. But we're not talking about an occasional mistake. We're talking about them pressing a point as a major plank of their ministry, saying this is truth when it's clearly not. That's not someone who's trying to get it right. That's someone who's self-evidently trying to push something that's wrong. That's not a believer. Finally, the last comparison, Jesus turns his attention to his own followers He says in verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came. And the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Well, the word therefore in verse 24 indicates that he's moved into his final conclusionary statement. And this is a contrast of two builders. Two builders. Notice in verses 24 and then again in 26, you see that the builders each represent those who have heard his teaching but do different things with it. First, there are those who hear. They know what they've heard to be true. And they act on them. 
another way to say it is these are the few who find that narrow path. These are the few who look at the results of Jesus' ministry and saw the fruit of what he was doing and realized this is the real deal. Jesus says those people, they're wise builders. They're putting their eternal dwelling, their eternal home on rock. And not just any rock, of course, but the rock, as Jesus is often called in the Bible, the Old Testament. And he says, when the test comes, it will withstand the test. It will still stand. Now, there are those, on the other hand, who hear his teaching, and they reject it. And in the light of what we've learned, what are they rejecting it for? Well, they're rejecting it for the more conventional views, for the more popular alternatives. They're on the wide path, and as a result, they build a house on sand. And, of course, that would be ridiculous for anyone to do it, which is the whole point. As soon as any kind of storm comes, that test is going to knock the house down. They're going to fail their test when the time comes. Now, we all understand what he's getting at. The contrast should be obvious here. But there's an interesting progression against all four, across all four. Let's look at it from that point of view. If you stitch all four of these together, here's what you hear. If you want to enter heaven, if you want to get to the kingdom, you've got to select the right way to get there. Not always to lead to heaven. Just one. It's narrow and it's a little hard to find because most people are looking for something else. That's equivalent to placing your trust in Christ, relying on his death on the cross to pay for your sin, acknowledging that you do not have enough righteousness to get to heaven on your own. You need his righteousness appropriated by faith. That's what he's talking about right there. That was the first contrast. Now, after you get on that narrow path, it's a path, right? It's not a destination. It's a journey, as they say. Now, the journey isn't to find out if you're going to heaven. That's settled the moment you step onto the path. So what's the journey about? Well, the journey is growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ as you await the day you meet him. And as you begin down that narrow path, that growth process, he says, first thing he says is, in the second contrast, beware the false teachers. Beware the false influences. They're going to cause you to stumble, try to lead you astray, try to impede your walk. So as you go along, pay attention to the fruit of those who would teach you. You have to be fed for this journey. You have to have spiritual strength. What do we feed on? The bread of life. You have to be fed with the right things. So select good teaching, select good fruit. And even if these men should impress you with some pretty marvelous displays of spiritual power, don't let that fool you. Just consider the product of their ministry in terms of the fruit of the ministry. That's all you need to look at. And then lastly, if we take this path, the narrow path, having heard Christ's words and acted on them, that is having placed our faith in them, then we will be prepared when we meet that final test. When that judgment day arrives, you'll stand for your judgment without fear, without destruction, without worrying that your abode will be taken away from you. You're not going to pass it because of your own accomplishments. You're not passing it because you were smarter than everyone else. You're passing it because you believed in the truth you heard. That's the reason you're there. Now those on the wide path, well, they go oblivious into their own destruction led by false teachers who take them there, dwelling in a house of lies, as the phrase goes, having it crash down on their head in the moment of their judgment. It's just that simple. It's that profound, but it's that simple. Where are we in that path? Well, clearly, those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're on the path. We're in this room for a reason, most of us, if not all of us. And I think you're also moving down the path because in this particular room, in what we do, We're doing our best, as God allows, to move you down a road of spiritual maturity. We're teaching you the Bible. We're trying to encourage you to follow it. We're trying to explain the reasons why you should care about it. And in that, we're trying to move you somewhere for a better reward in the kingdom. So 
As far as I can understand what Jesus is asking, I think we're meeting the expectations. But there may be others in the room for whom the path is still not what they're on. There may be some in here who are on the path, but wherever they normally attend church or whatever they normally seek for their influences isn't growing them very much. And you've come tonight out of curiosity or something else. Perhaps you know friends who are in some of these places in life. This is a powerful area of Scripture that you can walk through with somebody or for your own sake to understand that knowing Jesus, fire insurance and all the rest, that's not enough. That's not what Jesus has asked of his church. He's asked us to do something with what we've been given. And if maturing in your faith is not your priority, if you can't name more than a handful of the books of the Bible, well, take that as your challenge because that's his expectation. Not for the sake of the knowledge, but because as you devote your time to this, you become more like him. And if you're becoming more like him, then you're pleasing him and you're meeting the expectations he's put on this church. That's the whole intention. So we've come to this place for that. Let's pray. And as we pray today, and as we leave today, I'm going to ask each of you to think hard and long about your own state of spiritual maturity. Where do you feel you are? And if you feel like you are in a place where you could use some help, then go out and sign up for a small group. That's one of the best ways you can get that strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for the reminder that not all who would claim to help us are who they claim to be. Thank you, Father, for the reminder that there's a path we must follow and that not all paths lead to you. And thank you, Father, for the reminder that what you have done for us in Christ is sure and solid, built on a rock that cannot be toppled, and that no matter what happens to us in our very, very worst days, Nothing is changing for our eternity. That when all is said and done and these things are passed, we will be in the glory that's been promised and we will not bring to mind the difficulties of today. That day may be soon, it may be far from us, but it can't be long. It can't be that long. And so, Father, we just want to be ready for that day as we stand here with you on this path you've put us on. We want to be ready for when we stand before you as children of God, made so by faith alone, but called to good works so that we may glorify you. We want to stand before you, having done everything we could for the time you gave us to glorify you. And we start, Father, with our knowledge and we move to our obedience. I pray, Father, that what we're learning would cause us to rethink those things in our life that have gotten in the way of of obedience. And then as we set our mind to that, to obeying, to walking with you, you would send us the right teaching, the encouragement we need, the courage to make tough decisions, the friends that will help us when we get weak, the things that make the difference, Father. We pray for these things as well tonight. And don't let us just keep these things to ourselves. Let us share what we're learning, Father. And let us see a few more people here in in the days to come so that we can share it with them too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.